welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, Managing Editor of Television for Variety, and today my guest in New York is producer Colin Callender. Callender is known for having excellent taste and the relationships to bring major stars to his productions. He's also long been an innovator in financing his projects through international co-productions. Colin spent more than 20 years with HBO before launching his own company, Playground, in 2012. Playground has a big presence in TV on both sides of the Atlantic this year. He's done the adaptation of Howard's End for stars in the BBC, King Lear with Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson for the BBC and Amazon, and Little Women for BBC and PBS. He's also very active as a stage producer, and he just launched a little show on Broadway called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Here, Calendar sets the record straight about the high price tag for Cursed Child, don't believe every number you hear. He also talks about the booming worldwide market for classy drama, and he offers up his Yalta Conference strategy for managing international production partners. Thanks for joining us today, Colin Calendar. We really appreciate you stopping by. Let's start by talking about your company, Playground. You have a really interesting mix of TV, film, stage projects, a little show that just opened on Broadway called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Tell us about the growth of Playground since you launched the company in 2012. When I uh, left HBO, I was very keen to produce theater. And in fact, the very first thing I did after leaving was produced the Nora Ephron play Lucky Guy with Tom Hanks and funny enough that had been a script that was a feature film that was um, developed by Sony and uh, when Sony passed on it Nora Ephron brought it to me at HBO when I was there and we, we ended up not making it but when I came back well, when I started Playground I really thought that Lucky Guy could be a play and I went to Nora and said have you ever thought of doing this as a play? Because I don't think it's going to get made as a movie anywhere. And she said, no, no, I want to do it as a movie. And she, she was flying out to um, Los Angeles to meet on the uh, Julia Childs movie. And she said, but let me, I'm back in two weeks. Let me think about it, and I'll give you a call. So about ten days later, I get a call from Nora saying, well, I didn't go to L.A. We were sn- caught, we stuck in New York of a snowstorm, and I've <laughs> written the play. Would you want to read it? Um, and, of course, then uh, I, it, was, it, it went from there. I, I think what's true of my career and the very first thing I produced as a producer was the television version of the Royal Shakespeare Company's Nicholas Nickleby. It was a nine-hour miniseries um, for the new Channel 4 in England, and, in fact, it was Contract 001 at Channel 4. This was in the 1980s? This was in the 1980s, and in many ways... That project, uh, on reflection, with retrospect, uh, embodies a number of characteristics that, are, that have sort of defined my work over time. Um, firstly, the, the production was a mix of theatre, film and television people, all on the same production. It was a television series director, it was a cinematographer, film cinematographer, it was, it was, it was shot like a, single, like a movie over, nine, uh, over three months, um, so that was very much a sort of a coming together of talent from different disciplines. And I think that's informed a lot, if not all, of what I've done over the years. And it's certainly at the core of Playground, the idea of uh, 
drawing on my relationships with talent in the film, theatre and television world. The second thing is that, that Nickleby was a co-production. Um, and in fact, when we approached Channel 4, uh, I had already got Mobile Oil here in the States to sponsor it for syndication in America and uh, a division of Polygram at the time to handle the distribution. So I was able to go to Channel 4 and say, this is going to cost £5 million, we've got £4 million, will you put in the remaining £1 million? Um, and they did. And uh, so, that, um, uh, so, so that was the, the, a business model that uh, I have actually gone back to over and over again. Um, because after Nicholas, you had a you had a long, you know, twenty year, nearly twenty year run at HBO, as a as a well, producer after, after and Nicholas, the, the, after Nicholas Nickleby, there, there was about five years of producing in England, and mm-hmm. the reason I ended up at HBO was because we were the co-producer of choice in England for HBO because HBO's uh, creative ambitions uh, ex- exceeded its financial reach, <laughs> and so they needed partners, and I had met Michael Fuchs on the Quasette one one night um, during the MIP TV festival. And um, uh, and as I say, we became the the co-producer of choice. So Playground uh, has sort of embodies those two things, both working with Mark Rylance, a stage actor, in something like Wolf Hall, um, having Ken Lonergan, a playwright, adapt Howard's End, um, making... Uh, King Lear with the movie star Anthony Hopkins. Uh, Those are characteristics, I think, that uh, inform all the shows we've done. And they're all co-productions in one way or another. Howard's End, sorry, uh, Wolf Hall was a co-production between the BBC and uh, Masterpiece Theatre. King Lear is a co-production between BBC and Amazon. um, And... uh, Howard's End was Stars BBC. So we've been involved in all our projects that have had both an American and a UK partner. What are the what are the benefits and what are some of the hurdles of doing a co-production for a for a you know a sizable production like a Howard's End or a King Lear? Well, there are enormous hurdles, um, and the hurdles are primarily creative hurdles, and they are hurdles that I think a lot of people are stumbling at at the moment. Um, The real challenge is creating a show uh, that that has creative integrity that um, that, so that the actual creative team are only serving one master, even if you as the producer are actually having to serve several. I, I remember a story going back to Nicholas Nickleby again, which is sort of apocryphal, uh, though I didn't realize it at the time. Nicholas Nickleby was nine hours long. The Channel 4 in England wanted to air it in two parts as it played on stage, one night at four hours and one night at five hours. Mobile wanted to syndicate it around independent stations in the U.S. in four two-hour chunks, and Polygram wanted to distribute it internationally as nine one-hour episodes. <laughs> and I remember thinking, there's no way we can make this work. Uh, and I decided, and I tried to negotiate individually with the various partners to try and find some consensus, but didn't get anywhere. So I decided to hire what's, what's called the Roosevelt Room at <laughs> Brown Hotel, Brown's Hotel in London, Albemarle Street, 
and convened a one-day sort of Yalta conference. And we, <laughs> we had the guys from Mobile, the guys from um, Channel 4, and the guys from the Polygram Distribution Company. And then I had David Edgar, the writer. I had Trevor Nunn, the original stage director, and Jim Goddard, the new TV director, and myself. And we had the room from 9 till 6 in the evening. And I started the meeting by saying, we have this room till 6 o'clock. At the moment, everybody wants something different. We need to actually come away from this meeting with a consensus and support for one clear vision of the show. And if we can't do that, then, well, it was a good, good try, and we tried, but it didn't work out. And indeed, by the time we ended uh, that meeting, we did have a consensus on what the form of the show should be. And I didn't realise it at the time, because I was a wet-behind-the-ears sort of you know, kid producer. It was my, as I say, it was my very first credit. But that really is at the core of successful co-productions. It's everybody sharing the same vision from day one. And um, if there is a slight gap in terms of the, 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 that consensus, it's like a rocket ship that's launched into space. The, the curvature seems small at the beginning, but by the time the rocket is really in outer space, it's really veered off course. And most troubles and, and, and problems that arise in co-productions are a function of there being a slight disconnect early on, which grows into a very large disconnect later on. Once you're far right, along once and you can't in, once, change. Once you're yeah. in production and once you're trying to sort of uh, fix things that should have been addressed right at the very beginning. So do you have a Yalta conference for when you, before you start any major uh, co-production now? No, because um, I... I, I embody the Yalta Conference. My playground itself um, navigates those the, 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 the requirements of the, the, the co-producers in the following way. I, I think that you've got to have a clear vision of what the show is. And as a producer, that's, your, that's, that's part of your job, um, is, is to have a clarity of vision. And then once, once you have that... Um, your job as you bring together the creative team is to create a safe environment in which that team can do their very best work and to be the first audience of one and to occasionally tap them on the shoulder, whether it's the writer or the director or whatever, and say, is that what you really meant to do because we were heading in that direction? You seem to be slightly going off. And that's the producer's job. And what I've learned, um, having done all these co-productions, is that once you have that vision, uh, that's... That's the vision you, are, you sell to the, the two partners. And if the partners have different visions, if they don't buy into that, then it's not going to work. But, but uh, what, what the, the important thing for a producer to do in the middle of these co-productions is, is to have the, that clarity and to, be, and to be dogged about protecting the vision so that when casting ideas or script ideas um, are presented um, from one party or another... Um, that we as playground uh, sort of uh, we, we, we sort of edit that we, we sort of take on board what we think is right for the vision and we argue vehemently against things that we think are wrong for the vision um, the worst case scenario is an example um, that happened a few years back which was early on in playground um, life when we did a co-production between NBC and Sky on Dracula um, which I co-produced with Carnival. And 
Jonathan, Jonathan Rhys Myers was, was the central character. Um, and the whole premise of the show was he was, Dracula was returning to Victorian England um, as a sort of um, an American uh, 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 sort of entrepreneur um, and as an outsider coming into English society. About four weeks into the shoot, NBC wanted us to turn that character into an Englishman. Um, and the whole story structure, the whole, the whole uh, concept would have just fallen in on itself. Not to mention four hours. You know, Not to four mention hours that we'd already shot four, four weeks of, of material. And we got on the phone, Graham, uh, um, uh, um, Gareth Neiman and I got on the phone with, uh, with NBC and we had a conversation. We persuaded them it was not a good idea. So, so I, I, I think the real hurdle is not falling victim to the competing pressures of the financiers and re- the producer really being the uh, keeper of the flame. Can you talk about the, how the financials of co-productions work? Um, I'm guessing that there's probably no no two projects come together in exactly the same way, but do you... I know you've done a lot with the BBC, a lot for Stars, for Amazon, for HBO. Does... Is there usually... Does it start with one network and you bring another, like a U.S. partner on board? Or can you talk about how the, the commissioning process happens usually? Yes, the, the model we've been following is that we find a, a U.K. home for the show first, um, develop it um, with them, because under the British terms of trade, uh, when a British broadcaster puts up development money, they're basically buying an option to finance. They don't own the, 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 the script that's actually developed. Right, that's very, diff- very different than in the U.S. Different, fundamentally yeah. different to the U.S. business model, which is why the U.K. business model, which is why Playground is focused on that U.K. business model, because we, we end up owning the shows that we produce. So the model is basically we, we find... Uh, a, uh, we partner with a British broadcaster to develop a project, um, get it to a script stage, and then find the appropriate home in America if it needs a, a home in America. Having said that, almost invariably, when I start a pro- when we start a project, we know where we want to take it, or we know where we think the, ho- the home in America will be, um, whether it's Stars, whether it's PBS, Amazon, um, uh, or others, and. Um, but that's the, that, that's the model. So in terms of the financing, uh, it's probably about a third of the money comes out of the UK, a third of the money comes out of the US, and the remaining third is a combination of the tax, um, uh, the, the, uh, tax incentives in the UK and an advance from a foreign distributor. Mm-hmm. And so because, you, because Playground owns that property you are you then responsible you take it around the world and license it to other broadcasters and is that kind of where you make most of your profit well the, the, the it depends on the it, it depends on the gap between the actual budget and the financing available but more often than not the financing model entails at, bef, going as you're setting up the production to go to a, a foreign distributor um, and, and getting an advance, some sort of minimum guarantee from them in advance that goes into the production budget um, so that they then have the distribution rights. So we're not actually selling territory by territory. We're dealing with various distributors uh, who distribute on our behalf mm-hmm. in return for them having have put up some sort of minimum guarantee that helps finance the production. Is that model becoming challenged in a world where you have, you know, big buyers like Netflix and Amazon that are increasingly 
want global, you know, virtually all global rights so that they can so that they can air the program on their platforms, you know, simultaneously around the world. Is that a challenge for that ability to to bring money in from from sales in other international markets? I I think that's going to have little or no impact in terms of the business model for American-based producers. But it is a fund. It is uh, a challenge uh, for British-based producers because, as I say, the the benefit and the opportunity for British producers in England is to build a company in which you own, you have a catalogue, you have your own catalogue, which has, has value over time, which you can then maybe down the road sell uh, and, and be bought out. And it's, it's obviously the case that a lot of British independents, particularly in the drama area, have over time sold themselves to Left Bank, Andy Harris's company was sold to Sony. Mm-hmm. Um, Carnival that produced Downton Abbey was sold to NBC Universal. Um, and they were able to sell their companies at a, uh, a quite a... Quite a decent price because they had um, distribution rights that they they owned the product um, so British producers are going to have to make a decision going forward about whether or not they're going to have to weigh in the balance on the one hand the, the value of owning your own show under the business model in which a US partner is simply a licensee mm-hmm. uh, versus the opportunities to increase the amount of production they make um, uh, w- with some of the SVOD platforms who actually are, as you quite rightly say, insisting on owning all rights. So it, it's, 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 it's a balance uh, and a, uh, a strategic decision and a financial decision that British producers are going to face uh, as they go forward. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that could advantage places like Stars and PBS and Showtime that are still, if not strictly domestically focused, then very regionally focused versus you know a global platform like an Amazon or Netflix? Well, I I, I have another theory about this, which is that I think that what happens with uh, new platforms like the Amazons and the Hulus and the iTunes and uh, Apple, excuse me, um, is that in the initial few years they, they they try various different creative models. They they look for different sort of creative um, strategies, and then they tend over time to sort of find their own creative niche um, and their own creative focus. I think within that time of experimentation, so to speak, there are opportunities for British producers. But I think what's going to happen over time is as the Netflixes and the Amazons take on this really global perspective, but rooted in the US marketplace, I think their taste is actually going to become less eclectic and more focused. And I think that they will be less interested in the long run in the sort of work that British producers do best. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think, in fact, the market is, is, is going to sort of, is going to, um, uh, an equilibrium will, will emerge uh, that actually, um, rather than, rather than, than, that, than these platforms being multi-genre and multi um, uh, and, and have a whole range of programming. I think, actually, funny enough, they're going to do the reverse. 
And I think if you think about what Jeff Bezos has said about Amazon um, and, and what his focus is with Amazon, I think the $250 million purchase of Lord of the Rings um, is an indication that he wants very big branded series on Amazon. Um, he doesn't want uh, some of the smaller st- series uh, and more niche programming that uh, Amazon had ex- explored and uh, experimented with before. So I suspect that, that that move from Jeff Bezos will be reflected elsewhere, even though that's not, I, I acknowledge at the moment, that's not the conventional wisdom, but I do actually believe that's where it's going. With so many outlets out there, so many platforms, you know, it behooves everybody to have more of a specialty than the than the the big tent right now that's an interesting you know it'll be interesting to see how those how those develop um you know your company among the among the productions right now are howard's end an adaptation of the of the terrific forster novel little women a true classic king lear doesn't need a lot of introduction are those um are those i mean obviously fantastic literary properties is there a certain amount of built-in recognition for the titles that is important to you? Or are these, or are these just projects that you really wanted to tackle? It, it's less to do with the instant recognition of the title itself, and it's more to do with having a vision of how one's going to sell it, both to the broadcaster but also to the marketplace once it's made. And I think that um, there's a lot of, as you say, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of clutter so the ambition with every project at least for playground is to somehow break through that clutter and to find a way of actually um uh, like a laser sort of sort of cutting through the fog and, and and getting through the other side and so there's no question that having a known title um as part of the mix is uh is one element. It's not the only element. I mean, clearly, in the case of Howard's End, one way of cutting through the clutter that we did with Howard's End was getting Conan Olligan, um, getting a writer of his stature. We were particularly lucky, of course. Um, this was We actually commissioned Ken before Manchester by the Sea, so um, <laughs> we, little did we know at the time that we would end up um, having, a, having the series written by an Oscar, Oscar-winning writer. Right. It was a very nice thing to happen along the way. Um, but um, So I, I think understanding how... Uh, how a show w- 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 how we will sell a show and, and present it to the marketplace is central to the initial thinking and it's part of the playground brand frankly we have decided that we were going to um, focus on one sector of the scripted business which was the top end event um, high, high end high quality uh, end of the market um, up to now most of our work has been miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, we're about to launch shortly and announce a couple of ret- returning series that will be uh, that, that, we're, that we've been commissioned to make. And um, but I, I think that uh, it, this is this is an area that I think playground uh, is very. It, that this is the area that we're focused on and. I think, and I think it's the area that we can. It's the part. It's the type of drama that we, we can do best. Um, not everything that we're doing is, is historical. We we started shooting this week with something called Chimerica, um, which is for Channel Four in England, which is uh, a, a drama about an American photojournalist um, in China, and um, uh, that, that that was based on a play actually by uh, um, Lucy Kirkwood. And that's a sort of c- contemporary thriller. Um, 
But again, it, it, uh, the, the way we put it together with the creative team, with the casting and um, the material itself, it, it, it lends itself to being something that would be written about not just on the entertainment pages, but off the entertainment pages also. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of... A- that's that's a goal right now with so much out there anything that can elevate i hear that from a lot of executives um for chimerica is that something that you're shopping for a u.s partner well interestingly chimerica is an unusual situation chimerica is a co-production with playground with with channel four in england and a company called all three media oh sure Mm -hmm. um and all three media deficit financed the show both at an equity level and as part of a uh, with, with a minimum guarantee against distribution so actually all three media have the international rights, including the American rights. So in this instance, there isn't an, there isn't an, an American uh, platform, broadcaster, cable company um, involved at the outset. At I, know, I know they're, they're having conversations, but we funded it without that being in place. Mm, interesting. When you, uh, when you think back to the days of Nicholas Nickleby and you know, your initiative to bring on mobile oil and to get, to get that kind of sponsorship, that sounds like a, a, a very entrepreneurial approach for that time in British production. When you think of, so obviously you were, you were thinking big even from the get-go. When you think back, though, to those days compared to now in terms of the opportunity, the ability to monetize, the ability to, to distribute your shows around the world, it must be kind of a night and day it, it is night and day, but just going back to what you said about the mobile situation, it was doubly innovative because what mobile did, it didn't go out. Mobile at the time was the sole sponsor of Masterpiece Theatre on PBS, but Ma- but mobile didn't put didn't uh, uh, air Nicholas Nickleby on PBS. They put together a loose group of ninety percent of independent stations around. The country and created an ad hoc network for the, the four nights that the show went out, and that, that is, this was 1983, I think it was. So back then, this was before Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, this was before um, cable, uh, basic cable, had exploded. And so this was this was a, that was a very bold move on their part. It, it, it went out here on um, is it WNEW in New York? I think it was, and it was KTLA in, in Los Angeles. It wasn't. It, it, it wasn't the PBS stations, it was the independent stations. So has it changed? It's changed dramatically. Um, I think that uh, the size, the, the big change for British producers in particular came with Downton Abbey. Mm. And it mm-hmm. wasn't that Downton Abbey, uh, the phenomenon of Downton Abbey wasn't that the show, as good as the show was, and it, is, it, was, a, it was a great show, it wasn't that it was the best British drama to have come out of England ever and therefore it became more successful it wasn't that at all because there had been lots of wonderful British dramas before it My Own Nicholas Nickleby Upstairs Downstairs Jewel in the Crown and so on but what the, what distinguished da- uh, Downton Abbey was it, it was the first British drama on PBS to, to, ride, to catch and ride the tsunami of SVOD mm. because what happened was um, with that show um, episodes were available on, on iTunes or on Netflix or uh, uh, um, uh, Amazon within minutes of it actually being on PBS. Normally what would happen on PBS is for a British show is it would have played on a Sunday night at 9 o'clock. It would have played over the season and then maybe six, nine months later you might have been able to get the box set. Right, they'd sell you a video, right? Right. So now with, with Downton Abbey, suddenly... 
a whole universe across the country had access to this show in a way that never before, which is why it became such a water cooler uh, 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 title, because because many, many, many more people had access to it while it was going on on PBS. And that, that was a big change, and I felt that that created an enormous opportunity for British producers uh, and um, you know to, to a large extent my own career has been uh, characterized by me, me sort of sort of uh, zealot like um, being at the right time right place at the right time I, I was first in at channel four um, with the first independent production out of the UK I, I got to HBO just before uh, it, it became the phenomenon it was, and we rode the wave of, of HBOs and the impact HBO had on the marketplace. And I, I created Playground just at a time when the, the, the SVOD marketplace was now was, was the new dynamic that was changing the marketplace um, and creating new opportunities. So I think that uh, part part of the fun of this for me is constantly trying to reinvent and discover the new models. I mean, in the case of King Lear, right. uh, we have a six-film deal with, with Amazon for King Lear, um, and, and Lear is the first of the six. Um, and they're, they're all going to be Shakespeare adaptations? No, 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 they're, they're, going to be English, they're going to be English dramas. In fact, what happened was we made, um, we, we made something called The Dresser with mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins and Ian McKellen, and Amazon were very, very keen to take The Dresser and that would have been the first of a, a six-part deal. What actually happened was that the, the time it took to negotiate the deal with Amazon um, was it was taking longer than I had because we had a particular window with, with Anthony Hopkins and Ian McKellen. And in the end, Stars um, stepped in and supported the film and did, were wonderful partners. Um, but the idea is to find uh, British plays that we can do with the BBC and Amazon that will attract movie stars, and so um, so it's not Shakespeare. Uh, it, it, it's the fact that it's it's Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, directed by Richard Eyre, that, that really is what drove uh, the, the King Lear right. uh, project. It was great. You <clears throat> got Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson and King Lear while doing a uh, also doing a remake of of Howard's End, which I, is I, kind you, of you coincidental. Know, you are the. This is why I, I'm such a fan of yours. You're the first person to clock that or to mention that. It's doubly interesting because Hayley Atwell, um, uh, her mentor is Emma Thompson. Um, <laughs> small world. So it's a very small world. So, um, yeah, but yes, that, that was funny. That's good. Let's talk about the business of stage. You obviously, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, incredible record-breaking run on the West End, just opened on Broadway. Not going to worry about that one making, you know, recouping its costs. But... Outside of a something like a Harry Potter, can you make money on stage? Can you make money producing plays? Um, the first play I produced was, as I said, Lucky Guy with Tom Hanks, directed by George Wolfe, uh, written by Nora Ephron. And uh, Roy Furman, who's a theatre producer and investor, he has told me from the beginning that that, that completely spoiled me because... Uh, because that did make a lot of money. And at the time, it was now four years ago, um, <clears throat> at that point, we were the highest grossing play in the history of um, Broadway. We had the highest weekly gross of any play ever mm. uh, on Broadway. Um, yes, I think there is uh, 
if, if you're smart and, uh, and sophisticated in the, uh, in, in the putting together of the material and the right creative talent. That said, it is a very, very tough time right now for, for straight plays on Broadway. Very tough time. I think there are only five or six new plays on Broadway this year. Um, and whereas in London, uh, the, the, the marketplace is much more... Uh, uh, compatible with or m- 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 much easier for a, a new play. I, I think some of the plays that have done well over here, if you take Curious Incident, uh, for example, uh, I don't think that play could ever have opened as an original play on Broadway in the way it did in the UK. And that's partly because of the National Theatre and the, 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 the Royal Shakespeare Company and the way in which British theatre companies have um, sort of government funding, mm-hmm. uh, which allows them to take certain sort of creative risks that is harder for the uh, the broad way to do but uh, uh, and the other thing is that the costs are very different you know a play uh, a play in London that, that would cost uh, four hundred thousand pounds to mount would cost four, four million pounds to mount on Broadway uh, the cost uh, the cost differentials are extraordinary and is that mostly labor and talent yes. costs yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's different um, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child has, you know, set records for budget and expectation. I would imagine it was daunting to when you sat down to really think about how are we going to translate this incredible franchise that means so much to so many kids, including my 17-year-old son, uh, t- to translate that to, a, to an equally dazzling stage experience. Two things. F- firstly, i got to correct this. Num- there's a number out there of 68 million that people are saying is what Harry cost to produce. Not true. It's not true. Okay, we're getting it's it on record here. Absolutely not true. Um, that number included, um, and I don't even know what the final number was, that um, rolled into it the, the, the amount of money that uh, ATG, the Ambassador Theatre Group, spent on renovating the theatre. Mm. That was completely. That was a completely separate capital cost. Had nothing to do with the capitalization <laughs> of the play. So the, the cost of mounting the play was, was nowhere close to that. Can you give us a well, it, ballpark? It, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, it's on public record. Forty-ish? Uh, le- less. Okay. So, um, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, my partner on Harry Potter, Sonia Friedman, the, the two of us started from a very simple place. We were interested in exploring how does a kid who's grown up for 11 years living under the stairs alone mm-hmm. with who's an orphan um, who doesn't know what happened to his parents who's living with really s- sort of mean-spirited uh, uh, aunt and uncle um, how did he grow up to, uh, to be an adult and and above that, even more than that, how does he, how does he become a father? He hasn't, he's never really had a father. He hasn't had a father. He hasn't been father. He did, he, the notion of having parents was, an anath- was something he, he never experienced. The final chapter of the seventh book, or it's not a chapter, excuse me, the, pro, the epilogue of the, of the seventh book, um, is a scene with Harry and Ginny taking their middle son to, to King's Cross to go to Hogwarts. Uh, so it's Harry and Ginny as adults, as parents, with a, with, with a middle son who is a troubled kid. That epilogue is the opening scene of the play. And when we went to go and see J.K. Rowling, 
we said we think there is a play here in exploring the sort of emotional and psychological landscape of Harry as an adult um, and in, in a way that maybe a book or a film wouldn't necessarily do no, and it, would need, it wasn't necessarily we, we said to her we, we, we imagine because you created such, such a sort of fully dimensional world of Harry that there are things that you know about Harry and the characters that have actually never actually made it into the books or the films things that you just had in your head as part of the creation of this whole parallel universe and it would be interesting to explore some of those things and one of the joys of the play is A, at the core of it it is the story of a father and a son and a troubled father and a son and so as an audience member um, whether you're a kid whether, you, whether you're a teenager or whether, whether you're a 30 year old that grew up with the books or whether you're a parent um, uh, you'll relate in one form or another to those characters but the other thing that happens in the play that's very interesting is that characters that you think you knew from the seven books or the films you actually begin to see in a new light mm -hmm. you, see, you learn more about them um, and, and they open up to each other in the way that adults would because they have the distance of time um, in terms of looking back at their lives um, and, uh, and, and so it's, 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 it was, it's been very interesting to explore those characters that are otherwise familiar characters and look at, the, look at them in a more dimensional way as adults so it's a completely new story it's not a, an adaptation of an existing book it's, right. not, it's not a musical um, it's in two parts with a cliffhanger at the end of part one it, it, it's, uh, it's unlike in fact any other play that's, that, that's been produced of this, you know, if you think about the plays that are in two parts most of them up to now have been self-contained parts Angels of America the first play was performed a year or two before the second play came out um, going back to Nicholas Nickleby, for example, the first play was sort of self-contained. You could just see the self f first play, and not you didn't have to see the second play to see how things resolved themselves. And uh, we had a very interesting experience here because what happened was, uh, when when the play but when it began in previews, we were slightly worried that maybe people who weren't fans of the book, who didn't know the book, would would, ha would have wouldn't wouldn't be able to follow the story. And we were thinking about having some sort of digital a display in the lobby that explained the stories and mm. some of the characters. But then as we watched the audience, we were watching something really quite wonderful happen, which was that people were talking to each other and people were asking questions of each other and the fans were telling the non-fans oh, that they were explaining certain parts of the story and because the audience was staying with each other for the whole day and for part one and part two you're sitting in the same seat so you have the same neighbours people began to talk to each other and know each other and suddenly there was this extraordinary um, uh, dialogue going on within the audience um, between people all of different ages, all with differing knowledges of Harry Potter. And it is actually the fact that, 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 that we've, uh, we're certainly true in England that there are lots of people, and we've seen this online all the time, who have made fast new friends based on who they met when they saw the show. Um, so, we, so, so what became clear was if people didn't know what, what, why were people ooing and ahhing at that particular moment or who was that character, they would ask people around them and, uh, and the fans would explain. And so we never put up the digital screen and we, we, we just... 
allowed that sort of that sort of dialogue and uh, and sort of communal reaction to, to uh, we we try to foster it an old fashioned interactive experience an old fashioned interactive experience Colin Callender thank you so much for your time it's been really interesting talking with you and hearing getting a visibility into into the the market for british productions and also for for playground it's a pleasure thank you thank you thanks for listening Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Strictly Business.